0: smith and this is more than one lesson thank you all for listening so uh before we get into this week's topic i wanted to remind everybody that uh nate fleming's podcast thimble rigs arc is now available at morethanonelesson.com and you can uh, listen to it there or you can listen to it on itunes i highly recommend giving it a listen nate uh is uh he's only three episodes in at this point and he is already a very good podcaster so um for those that, uh, that don't know, uh, Nate talks about Christian film and Christian film only, and maybe you are bored by that, but honestly, even if you haven't seen the films, I think uh, Nate explores them in just such a way as to make it interesting to anybody. But that's just my opinion. Uh, oh, you know, hang on. Don't take my word for it. Listen for yourself. See, I should have said that. Uh, that, way, uh, that way it drives the traffic, to the to that uh, iTunes page. So um okay, I think uh I think that's about it. Uh I do know that um uh our writer Bob Connolly has written a review of Get Out uh in which he speaks very favorably about it, so you can find that uh, on the website. And I think that is about it. So I will go ahead now and welcome in my co-host Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Hi, good. All right. Glad to hear it. Now, we've got stuff to get to. Got to get to it. We've got to get to a rival.
1: Which rival? (laughs) I'm looking at him right now. I'm hearing the laughing in my head. Yeah. Here's a frustrating
0: thing that I think I've said on the show before. Okay. If I say the word apocalypse, now, just just now I said apocalypse. Like, I said it... On its own. Okay. But if I say it in a sentence, I might swallow that first A. Oh. I do say it, but it's very, it's very quiet. So it sounds like I'm saying apocalypse, like a which is adorable, <laughs> which is a toddler with big things on his mind. Um,
1: and uh, it's deeply frustrating. So yeah, uh, arrival. Like, yeah. like the, like the most adorable answer to the question, what are you afraid of? Apocalypse. There you go.
0: <laughs> oh, um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I thought of that. Oh, yeah, because uh, Arrival, you see it as, uh, as two words. Mm-hmm. Um feels like there's probably a foreign film called Arrival, right? Probably. Stands to reason. Or The Rival. There's a play called The Rivals. That makes sense. That sounds theatrical. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we are talking about Denis Villeneuve's Arrival, Written by Eric. This is going to be rough. Uh Heisserer, something like that. Uh, Based based on the story by Ted Chang. Mm -hmm. Chang, I don't know. Chang, Um, and uh, the story is actually not called Arrival. I forget what it is called. I'm sorry about that. I did not write it down. Now, Arrival is a science fiction film. That was nominated for a number of Oscars Including Best Picture, Director Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography Editing, Sound Mixing And Production Design And it won Best Sound Editing Uh, Arrival is I think a great movie It is An example of Let me ask you this If I ask you What is hard
1: sci-fi What would you answer? Um, I feel like it's sci-fi that, uh, that focuses more on the science side of it. And it seems like it could exist in some, it could exist in the real world. Yeah. Like none of us think star Wars could happen one day. Like someday we're all going to have lightsabers, but, uh, something like arrival feels like one that like this, this is something that. Yeah, could theoretically happen. Yeah, I think for some reason, contact is always the first one that comes into my head when I think about. I usually Star. go Solaris. Yeah, yeah. Well, Solaris, I don't even know because it's got. Uh, I think it has that kind of feel, but it incorporates these sort of supernatural elements. And I actually see. I would say
0: metaphysical. Yeah, the, supernatural certainly, mm. but. When dealing with the metaphysical, that is, that does not, uh, hard sci fi to me does not preclude the incorporation of the metaphysical. 2001 A Space Odyssey has it. It's true. Solaris has it. Mm. Um, And. I don't know it's it's hard for me when I I think Solaris is what I first think of when I think of hard sci-fi and then oddly enough I think of Alien which is still a horror movie mm-hmm. but because it absolutely feels like something that could happen as far as the tone mm-hmm. this is just people at work basically you know space truckers is what they said mm-hmm. yeah. so when you're in that environment, you absolutely feel like this is a technology that
1: could exist someday. I feel like because of the creature feature nature of that, it doesn't feel like hard sci-fi to me, but I don't know. I feel like there's, I think objectively it is not. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: But it's tough because, (laughs) because you're also dealing with, you know, the, the company Mm -hmm. and the idea of prioritizing of, of profit over humanity Mm Mm-hmm which is a standard science fiction trope, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like, I don't know. It's now that I ask, I find myself having a hard time. It's like that. I forget who said it, it was. I think it was a Senator or something like mm-hmm. that. When asked like, you know, what is pornography? And they, and he just said, I know it when I see it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. it is, I've, I think it's a difficult thing to define. Hmm. Except that there are plenty of action movies that have science fiction elements, but it is first and foremost an action movie. So along those yeah. lines, maybe Alien is
1: maybe not even maybe. I think it is a, a, horror, a horror movie, movie first. with science fiction elements. Yeah, I think I think that's a good that's a good. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other ones that really exemplify the hard sci-fi thing. If, I don't know why contact is always the one that the first one that I think, Sure, of, but that one feels so much like it's almost not even sci-fi. Yeah. Um, that it makes me think that moon feels a little bit like that to me, like hard sci-fi. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, the Martian probably is.
0: Yeah, I guess so. It's, uh, it's
1: except that it's, so easy to watch, um, you know. It, it feels like hard sci-fi should be a little difficult to digest, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> which is why I go to something like Moon. Moon is a little bit right, uh, a little bit out there. Let but... me ask you this: Brazil could Brazil good
0: Brazil be considered hard sci-fi?
1: I'd say no, just because there. I feel like there's too much of a fantastical element okay. to it. I think. On paper, maybe. It might be just the way that Terry Gilliam directs it and makes right. it seem less that way. The Lobster? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot of dystopian ones I think you could, yeah. that could be in that hard sci fi thing. Well, because there was that, that class that I took back in college, mm.
0: Science Fiction Visions of a Post Human Future. <laughs> or, as it said in the course catalog, Sci Fi Viz of a Post Hum Fut. <laughs> um, please note, I said Fut. Uh, <laughs> short for future obviously fut right. is I guess what I could have Feud. said um, but uh, but then that sounds like a piece of Ikea furniture or something <laughs> um, so and yeah and we watched a lot of a lot of those things and many of them were you know genre films that had major sci-fi elements uh, in them um, you know it's, it's rare to find a sci-fi drama hmm Uh, Or like a hard sci-fi drama. Yeah. Um, Just because the the somewhat fantastical elements of science fiction lends itself to horror, action, action, comedy even a little bit. Um, Did you see Never Let Me Go? No. It's great. And that is about as close as I can think to... A sci-fi drama because mm-hmm. it definitely takes place in a dystopian future where uh, people are harvested for organs. They're basically their whole life is mm-hmm. they are clones of rich people, and they their whole lives are spent just kind of killing time and they're provided for they don't live a super great life but it's not a bad life either mm. and it's and every once in a while they're called in so that they can have one of their organs removed and, to, and given to this rich person and then usually after about three or four the person dies mm. um or the clone dies and so um but you never see any kind of spaceship or hover car or even really buildings at all it,
1: mm. it definitely it takes a while to even realize mm. that this is the future in the world that we're living in that put me some, puts me in mind of another one which might fit into the same category but doesn't feel that way necessarily right away which is her sure oh absolutely that's that's a drama but it is in that same type of world where there is there definitely are developments that are science fiction developments undoubtedly but,
0: yeah. yes uh, and so, along, would you consider Arrival to be hard sci-fi?
1: I think I would, and normally I would almost not, just because of the alien aspect of it. It feels like right. almost, almost like anything with aliens can't quite be hard sci-fi, where you see them anyway, or, or like uh, that's that that I don't know if I can back that statement up. Maybe I take that back, <laughs> um, but. I think, yeah. it, I think it depends on what the aliens are doing. If they're yeah, trying probably. to destroy the earth, I'd say
0: <laughs> probably that's not. probably not hard sci-fi. But in
1: this, uh, and not unlike Contact, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah, I think I would say this one, is because uh, again, going back to the original thing that I said about hard sci-fi, is that it focuses... Uh, first and foremost on the science aspect of it. And this, they bring this woman in because she focuses in uh, linguistics and in language development specifically. And they go into a lot of the uh, specifics about the development of these, these creatures, the heptapods, they call them, isn't that right? Uh, About the development of their language and the way that they communicate and everything like that. Here's something that I would say happens with good
0: hard sci-fi and uh, I will use as an example, arrival, but also I'll say interstellar. Hmm. it gets it takes a a very technical concept that I normally would not care about at all <laughs> and and genuinely intrigues me. Hmm. For example, with Interstellar, the idea that because of gravity and the impact that it can have on the human body and and on time, oh, the yeah. idea that you know the this space the spacecraft lands on this uh, on this planet or whatever you want to call it, um, and for every you know hour that they're there it's 7 years right. in in the time that we know mm-hmm. and that there's one guy who stays behind on the ship and he says okay well while you guys are gone i'll be here researching this thing Which is to say, he's going to be researching for seven years at least uh, while they are spending a couple of hours uh, on this planet. Mm -hmm. And so that idea was fascinating to me, and it's not something that I expected in in Interstellar. And along those lines, Arrival got me so excited at the notion of linguistics. Yeah. There is that scene to me, like the film deserved best adapted screenplay just for the scene where she is breaking down the sentence. Yeah. You know, why are you here and explaining s- why that statement will take a long time to ever get to. Right. Even yeah. so far as like, we don't know if they even understand the concept of why. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, that, that idea blows my mind, and yeah. they put it in very simple terms, but they do not, in my opinion, sacrifice the complexity of the concept.
1: Yeah. Um, and it teaches you something new about language, if, if you hadn't thought of it already, which is that it's much more complicated than we could ever right. really think about. And it's complicated enough when you're talking about uh, language between humans who have right. so many common things, let alone... Uh, non-humanoid creatures from another planet. And like why? Why would we share anything in the way that we uh, we have communication? So she has to figure out what we share and what we can. What we can. How that can help us communicate. And I like your phrase that they're not even
0: humanoid creatures. Yeah. Like, which is to say, not only are they inhuman, but when you watch Independence Day or ET or Alien. Two arms, two legs, a head, maybe yeah. a tail. Um, with these, they seem to kind of have arms, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, or legs, but, maybe. Or <laughs> legs, but they also be, sort of become tent- tentacles and they spew ink as a way of mm-hmm. communicating. And they clearly stretch past the point that we are able to see. Mm-hmm. So they could be, you know, two or three stories tall and we have no idea. Yeah and that's something that i that i also love is that when you actually when you finally see these things they are very intimidating in some ways partially because i have no idea what i'm looking at or even where i should be looking right do they have faces yeah who's to say mm-hmm. um and i like that i like yeah. that it's just a film that you know so often when we see aliens depicted in movies they have Decidedly human characteristics, and i don 't just mean physically, mm-hmm. I mean motives as well yeah. and while the the motives of the heptopods are are also recognizably human, um, their language is not human, the way their ship operates is not human mm-hmm. they don 't look human it 's just <clears throat> excuse me it is quite literally otherworldly mm-hmm. it 's a film that absolutely understands that yes. If something comes from another world, we we should not expect it to be similar to us in any way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that I think that's one of the things that I love about this movie so much is how much Denis Villeneuve seems to just, he doesn't really adapt his directing style because in many ways the, his directing style lends itself to sci-fi really well, but we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a moment. Um it's that he will dwell on the, th- the unique elements of this story. Mm-hmm. For example, the way the aliens operate and, and that sort of thing. But I think that for me, when, the moment that Arrival solidified itself in my mind as uh, an amazing film was when amy adams and and other humans but it's it's her first time going into the shell Mm -hmm. and you know they they're lifting straight up and then suddenly the gravity is different and they they can now walk what looks to us to be sideways but it's not it's just that's the way the gravity is there Mm -hmm. and that sequence is allowed to breathe Oh yeah. It is it's stretched out because it's very strange. Yeah. It is strange for her and so it is strange for us. And Denis Villeneuve does not rush through it. He just he's he allows that that scene to breathe and that's when I realized that I was in good hands cuz this was a guy who at least understood the implications of everything that was going on.
1: Yeah. Um and that whole scene that there's so many uh, moments of discovery throughout that scene that make it engaging exciting and a little bit scary and and yeah. really it really has you throughout that sequence and
0: i also like that you know there there are some pretty standard villains in most sci-fi mm. if you are talking to a character who works for a corporation he's a villain <laughs> if you are talking to a soldier he might be mm mm-hmm. mhm there's a good chance he will be because mm-hmm. often uh, an element of sci-fi that, uh, that you'll see over and over is that the hero is the person that's able to think outside the box, is able mm-hmm. to adapt their thinking to the situation and corporate characters, they are thinking in terms of the bottom line and that's mm-hmm. all that matters. So of course they're not going to adapt their thinking. And then soldiers are, I'm, I'm not speaking in life. I'm speaking yeah. in these films, right? Soldiers are, are meant to think in terms of constantly assessing threat. Mm-hmm. And so they can't, they really can't allow themselves to think that far outside the box. And so uh, so we get soldiers in this film, soldiers from different countries who have different priorities. Uh, but I do like that Forrest Whitaker is sort of the represent... He and Michael Stuhlbarg are the representation representatives of the military and the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. And I like that they're their objections to what what might be going on are actually allowed to really land um you know there comes a moment when <clears throat> i don't remember exactly the uh, the analogy but uh someone talked about you know when when visitors landed in what was it australia or something like that uh that's right yeah when when white people, when when the British first landed in Australia, and they talked to the Aborigines, and and the Aborigines had this this word kangaroo that actually meant one thing, but the but the white people thought they meant another, and that sort of thing. Um, and she's using that analogy to talk about how vital communication is. And then Forrest Whitaker says, "Yeah, and uh, we actually saw what happened to the Aborigines when uh, when a more complex society came in and so mm-hmm. as she's thinking one way he immediately starts thinking another which is in threat assessment mm-hmm. and he's right which is it's important for us to know about these heptopods so yes that we can connect with them that'll be great but also we need to know if the, if we are horrendously outgunned mm-hmm. and i don't know it's just it's it's it, to me, it is invigorating to have characters exchange ideas, exchange points of view, and everybody has a leg to stand on. It's not merely you're the military guy, you're an idiot. You know, I hate to I hate to put it this way, but James Cameron tends to think in those terms. Oh, yeah, the corporate guy is the bad guy, the military higher ups, not the grunts, but the higher ups are usually the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nice to see a film where there really are no bad guys. There are some, you know, there are some military people from other countries who are maybe a bit hasty, Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: again, they're still acting in, in terms of self-interest, which is something that can be understood given the, the circumstances.
1: There's a few, uh, kind of nameless American military characters that kind of could be bad guys in this one, I think.
0: Right. And, and they're actually not even that higher up. They're like on this level where they're talking with their relatives and their relatives are hearing stuff from like the media and pundits and they're just, which, and and that's another element that actually is not explored that deeply, which is the, the role that, that media can play into Mm. panic. Yeah. Um, and that if you had reporters and pundits who were actually willing to think in terms of the opportunity that the heptapods could bring with them, that they could actually calm the populace. But mm-hmm. no, they're thinking in terms of, this is crazy, why are we not bombing them? Yeah. Which causes everybody to think in those terms. And so, yeah, yeah I, there are some, I think I would like to see a bit more character development on the part of the the military guys that ostensibly are, are willing to kill themselves uh, right. in order to stop this this potential threat i would like to see more of that but i'm i'm fine with it
1: mm. and maybe that's uh that could be something that was in an earlier draft of the script because sure. it does run a little bit long yeah. and there are moments i think leading up to that first discovery scene where yeah. it it feels a little rushed sure um, n- not enough to make me dislike the movie but I-, I think once I got to that point I remember thinking in the movie like I feel like we've just rushed through a lot of stuff yeah Um, and that's I mean that's hard because it has to cover a lot of ground before uh, like chronologically a lot of stuff has to happen before you can get to the end of the film yeah so uh, they're Points where you'll have to condense and that's i think that that beginning part is the is where i notice it the most there's kind of montage later but i think the montage works yeah i think Um, so that that doesn't feel like it is a detraction at all um but yeah that could be why they felt like they couldn't develop those characters that much because they're already kind of having to hurry through some of the earlier on stuff and when it
0: comes right down to it you know i'm fascinated by almost everything and so If you wanted to veer off and explore what it is to be like one of these soldiers, one of these lower level soldiers dealing with this, uh, and you wanted to devote 20 minutes to that, (laughs) I wouldn't have a problem with it. But it's not their story. It is Amy Adams' story. Yeah. So, and to to speak uh, about Amy Adams, I will say that uh, uh, she was denied, I think, a much deserved Oscar nomination for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people expected her to get one, and rightfully so. I think her performance, unsurprisingly, because I think Amy Adams is a marvelous actress. Mm-hmm. Um, her performance really does anchor this film. And when I think of sci-fi
1: hard or soft, I do not think of emotions. Uh, They're usually pretty dry and, and or, or at least cold, cold. Like if there's, if there's emotion, sometimes it's uh, it's cynical or negative or something like that. Um,
0: And, and her character injects not sentimentality and not just like, not hysterics or anything like that, but her character is such a great entry point into this because I genuinely believe that she reacts the way anybody would react. Now, she is something of a scientist, so she is able to to contain herself a little bit more than than most people would, but just the excitement at oh my gosh, aliens, and then I get to be a part of it, this is crazy, and then going up into the shell and then establishing some type of communication with them. Every moment is very exciting, but also very scary. And there's this feeling that she obviously has that this is so much bigger than me. How did I wind up here? Mm -hmm. So many people, this is maybe the biggest thing that the world has ever seen. And I'm one of the people at the center of it, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that she's starting to crack the 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 communicate the language barrier means that she is at the very center of it. Yeah, and so her character—I don't know—she, in a way, she kind of has the weight of the world on her shoulders, but she is not. At times she's exhausted by that, but she's also clearly invigorated by it at the same time. Um, She has to juggle a lot of emotions and convey them sometimes at the same time. And Mm -hmm. I think she does a marvelous job with that. To to say nothing of some of the other things, this is a film that is told in a nonlinear fashion and we see that that at some point in her life, um, she had a daughter and... Her daughter, in her teenage years, uh, gets very sick and eventually dies, and so she's dealing with that. And she has flashes to that in the midst of what she's dealing with right now. And uh, and in those scenes, you find yourself wondering what what does any of this have to do with any anything else? But um, and that's where I think the script one of the ways that the script really brings every is really amazing is that it brings everything together in a way that doesn't feel. Okay, so I was thinking about this because David and I were talking about Arrival and we were talking about the twist. Okay. But it's saying twist seems cheap Hmm. because it's it's not a gimmick. It's not a twist. And I'm going to go ahead and say spoilers, everybody. From now on, spoilers for Arrival. It doesn't feel like a gimmick. It doesn't feel like a twist. And it doesn't totally feel like a payoff because you don't totally realize what, I feel like a payoff is something that you have to feel like you're being set up for. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm being set up for something.
1: No, it it feels more like you suddenly realize that this whole story has been about something else, which is in a way a twist. Yeah. But I don't know. It's not really a gotcha twist. Right. If that makes sense. It's not like we fooled you. Yeah. Um, Twist these
0: days has more of a gotcha. Feel to it. I, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, here's what I was thinking. Here's where where I where I got to uh, as I was thinking this over. Is uh, it's this is really pretentious? What I'm about to say <laughs> is that it's not a twist. It's not a payoff. You use the word realization. That's pretty good. I, I'd say that's pretty right. But I think uh, I'm so sorry, but I can't help but say it. It is, in fact, an arrival. You arrive where at at the place you were always going to be, the place that you were meant to be in this film. Um, a twist is like a waha. What do you think of this? And then a payoff is is hey, what's going on with all this? I wonder. And it just gives you little hints along the way, or just it strings you along, and then finally here you have this thing. It's not that. It really is just. Here you are, and you might not even realize how you got here, but here you are. You have arrived at this place, having been guided by the director. And, and in some cases, I would say by the, the heptopods uh, mm. as well. And so, um, and, I, and I, I, one of the reasons that I like thinking in that term is because it doesn't sound so clinical. Payoff sounds clinical and twist just sounds manipulative yeah. arrival. And even realization sounds a little bit clinical to me, but to describe where you get to in the story as an arrival seems almost poetic to me. Hmm. Um, and I honestly think that is the nature of this story is that this is a woman who is just drifting hmm. through time. It would appear, uh, at least in her consciousness. Hmm. Um, and then she finally arrives at this place where uh, of understanding mm-hmm. uh and it is a, a
1: and acceptance
0: and acceptance and it, it really is marvelous because ultimately what is revealed is that you know we keep assuming that she's having flashbacks
1: mm-hmm.
0: to her daughter dying right and that this is all post right. that experience and then it turns out that she's having flashes but they are flashes forward mm-hmm. or the flashbacks are in fact, the heptopod stuff mm-hmm. um, but one of the things about their communication is that it's not a it's it's circular you know their letters are circles essentially mm-hmm. there's no clear beginning or end, and that is how they view time they don't view it in, in a linear way it's all sort of happening at the same time
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so You know, because this is a movie and it unfolds in a linear way, we can't help but think that, oh, maybe she's having Mm flash-forwards. Or maybe it's all happening at the same time. Yeah, But because of her understanding of their language, she's able to keep that in mind without going insane. Mm -hmm. And so... And I think, to go back to this idea of sci-fi, hard or soft, but I'd say especially hard... um, I feel like it will often deal with, I think metaphysical stuff and like, you know, the, the nature of the universe. Mm-hmm. But I think it also answers remarkably human questions. Mm-hmm. It might be, as you said, it might be very cold. Mm-hmm. It might feel clinical, but it's still there. There tends to be a philo- a philosophy behind hard sci-fi. And it seems to be trying to answer something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <clears throat> And with arrival, I think it is it is answering or at least attempting to answer this very human idea and this very not even idea, this very human experience of suffering and the avoidance of suffering. And if we could avoid this, if we knew that that there were bad things up ahead,
1: mm-hmm.
0: would we steer you know would we steer away from them? Yeah. Or would we acknowledge that There are very few things that are bad, that are purely bad without a little bit of good, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a relationship. It could be, uh, you know, a job where, yes, this is remarkably stressful, but maybe there's some kind of
1: benefit here. Um, yeah. very few things in life are a hundred percent good or bad. Right. So the film raises that question. If we could avoid something because we know that there's pain or, or something bad attached to it, yeah. is that worth avoiding the thing altogether? Yeah, it's it.
0: Honestly, oddly enough, it's uh, something that was explored in Inside Out uh, as well. Uh, Did you see Inside Out? I did. Uh, That idea that as this girl gets older, you know, there's there's happiness and no, there's joy, there's sadness, there's all these different emotions, and when you're younger, they are all separate. Hmm. But as you get get older, you start to understand that. No, there's this concept of bittersweet or whatever you want to call it, where there's a mixture of joy and sadness, and that's what it is to be human,
1: mm-hmm. is
0: to understand the complexity of emotions and experience. Mm-hmm. And to understand that, you know, sometimes you can't have the happiness, you can't have the joy without experiencing some of the sadness. Mm-hmm. And that makes you under that makes you appreciate the joy the joy so much more. Um <clears throat> and so so yeah, Amy Adams ultimately is being shown the future, or at least is perceiving the future uh, in which she's going to get married and she's going to have a, a child, and her child is eventually going to get sick and die, hmm. and she, and knowing that she has a choice to make, uh, which is do we go? Do I go ahead and have this child knowing? that after however many years, this child is going to die, mm-hmm. is going to get sick and die, not merely die quickly. It's going to be a process, yeah. a very heartbreaking process. And so, you know, that is a very, is a very human uh, idea. It's something I think anybody can relate to. I definitely know that, that I myself, uh, I've, I've thought back to times in my life, and I thought, oh, man, if I could go back to this time, if you could turn back time. If I could turn back time. I don't know any more lyrics no, beyond it. <laughs> um, but uh, if I could go back to this one moment in my life, ah, then things would be good. Mm-hmm. And that is true in its own way, except it's not. Like, you know, uh, there were moments in college that were great, Mm-hmm. There were. Moments, I would say you know my senior year of high school was pretty great in a lot of ways. I was able to do a lot of the things that I loved doing, um, and without any of the adult stress or anything like that. And so, if I think back and think, yeah, that's the time to live, and then I realize, well, wait a second, I'm happier with my wife than I ever was in dumb old <laughs> high school. <laughs> and yes. I am an I am an adult now. I have to pay bills. I have to go to work. I have to do things I don't want to do. But it is mixed with this tremendous happiness. Um, so would I really want to go back to this thing? Because in doing so, yes, I'm sacrificing. I'm I'm getting rid of you know very uh, adult grown up problems, but I'm also getting rid of a lot of the wonderful things that come with it, and so. I think it's a film that understands that to be human is to is to grapple with that, that complexity of good and bad, happy and sad, positive and negative, that can change day-to-day, hour-to-hour, and sometimes doesn't even change. It's just happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, you know, there's, there's a line in Arrival where Louise, Amy Adams' character, says, you know, if you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you change things? Mm. So along those lines, I want to bring up the companion film, which is Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko, 2001. Now, you and I were talking Going about this. Going back a little ways. Going back a, a little 15 bit. 15 years. I did think of Contact as a possible mm. companion film, and I think it would probably work. But thematically, I actually think this film works better. Sure, yeah. I saw Donnie Darko in the theater in 2001. I was excited to see it. I was 19, which you and I agreed is the perfect age to see Donnie <laughs> Darko. Um, yeah. I have not seen it since, but I have a shocking memory for it, um, which speaks which speaks to the quality of the film, you know. As much as I might just, as much as I might make my joke just now about how nineteen is the perfect age, <laughs> it is a film that deals in very interesting ideas, very interesting images
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that have stayed with me. You know, the image of yeah. the bunny uh, is very uh, uh, striking.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of imagery in the film that that sticks with you, and. Um, I don't know. I think I don't like Richard Kelly as a filmmaker in general. I think this is the only film of his I've seen. I didn't see Southland Tales. I saw enough of Southland Tales to think I can I can't watch this whole yeah. movie. Uh, and it wasn't one that I sat down to watch, but I I think someone else had rented it at a roommate and I was I was sitting watching some of it with him and I thought this this is a mess whatever it is. Yeah. Um and that's from what I've read in reviews and things. That that seems to be kind of be the consensus. But uh he also made that film, The Box,
0: from a few years ago. Yeah. Where, like, if you push this button and you know someone somewhere dies someone. and you get a million dollars. I remember, I don't, I don't recall if you were there, the very first BP Live and Bill Dwyer did his bit and he just talked about uh that he had just seen that film The Box and of course it's Bill Dwyer delivering it in his way yeah. I just saw that film The Box where if you push this you know people are wondering if they push this button and it uh and someone dies and I thought man this is a this is a story isn't quite tight enough for me <laughs> uh, it's a little bit too uh to uh, ah, I forget his I forget his uh, phrasing, but then he basically said, "He goes, I think the problem is that the story is uh, not that much of a dilemma, where it's ultimately, uh, hey, if you push this button, you get a million dollars, but somebody dies. Beep 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 beep. <laughs> hey, can I give you a list of names? Beep <laughs> beep beep beep. beep. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't actually see the box. Did you? No. It has uh, Franklin jella's sort Who of the, like the the. Not necessarily a Satan figure, but the guy who provides the box. Is it
1: Cameron Diaz? Is she the... Who's the woman in it?
0: I don't actually remember. It's somebody. I don't remember. The, I think it's like a young couple, but I don't remember uh, who they are. Yeah. I but know. I remember Frank Langella was the, the guy.
1: Yeah. And, but even even in the like... I think Richard Kelly definitely has a, a visual... I think it's a, a consistent visual <laughs> style, which I guess is good. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I feel like he has a tendency to want to deal in very high-minded things without being fully there. Yeah, it was Cameron Diaz and James Marsden. Oh, James Marsden. Okay, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, and I and I think I think that's one of the reasons Southland Tales is such a mess, and uh, I think the box could be that kind of thing also, where there's a this moral quandary and how does that unfold and what does that you know what are the larger yeah uh you know implications um and i don't have a, a great memory of of donnie darko we already talked about this and uh, but i do remember feeling kind of like there's a lot of of um Kind of heavy thematic things that are maybe not totally there. I would say that uh, anything relating to Donnie and
0: his family mm. is pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of extraneous things and a yeah. lot of a lot of secondary characters mm-hmm. that. I will say, you know, uh, Patrick Swayze plays this motivational speaker guru type, uh, that Donnie's high school really gets invested in. Mm -hmm. And they, he comes and talks to the kids and he speaks in, in very, very motivational speaker type lingo. You know, he's got his thing, which is, it's all about fear and you're coming from a place of fear and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will say that even though that character often feels a little bit cheap and, uh, I think Richard Kelly just really liked the idea of writing for this character mm-hmm. uh, he does write for him pretty well and Patrick Swayze plays him really mm-hmm. well um, but the character really isn't that necessary um, and yeah. then uh, the always awesome uh, Beth Grant plays um, like another school mom mm-hmm. who is obsessed with uh, uh, her daughter is part of this um, this little dancing troupe called Sparkle Motion and uh and she's you know kind of a that uh, that theater mom type um and while it's hard not to find some of that amusing and it winds up being kind of a fun little flourish in the end it just feels more like somebody who is just trying to be satirical and trying to—I don't know. It, it's in those moments that it, that uh, seeing it when you're 18 or 19 makes it seem that seem like a really great choice. But yeah. in retrospect, it's like, look, you're casting too wide a net. You're trying—are you trying to make fun of suburbia? Are you trying to do this American Beauty type thing? Yeah. Focus on Donnie when you focus on this idea of of destiny and fate and. And all of that you're great mm-hmm. when it is focusing on that it is indeed very focused it's mm-hmm. very sharp and it's very complete he seems to really as as unfocused and scattered as it sounds like Southland Tales was the primary story of Don, uh, Donny Darko is very dialed in uh, and he's mm-hmm. and Kelly seems to really understand what he wants to explore and how he wants to explore it and mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I have such a strong memory for it, having only yeah. seen it once, is that I thought it was a really well constructed story, um, with some really interesting ideas. Ideas that, frankly, Denis Villeneuve is exploring in in Arrival, you mm-hmm. know. So, uh, so the idea of okay for example here's here's a line from jenna malone's character in donnie darko what if you could go back in time and take all those hours of pain and darkness and replace them with something better Hmm. if you could see your whole life from start to finish would you change things like those are two one of them is from arrival one is from donnie darko the sentiments are very similar yeah um so so that's the thing is what it's exploring in Donnie darko is is i'd say a pretty timeless idea some of the ways that it explores it i think uh or maybe not even the ways that it explores this idea but some of the uh little flourishes of the film i think are maybe a little bit beneath the film to Mm -hmm. be honest um but I think uh, the performances are great. I think Jake Gyllenhaal. It's definitely the f- it's kind of the film that put him on the map, and I'd say rightfully yeah,
1: so. That's the first one I remember seeing him in, and now he is a a, a staple of Denis Villeneuve too. You're correct. Mm.
0: Hey, look at you <laughs> putting things together. Um, yeah, and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is in it as well. She mm-hmm. plays his sister, unsurprisingly. Uh, his parents, played by Holmes Osborne, who is an actor that I've liked. For a long time, he mm-hmm. was in That Thing You Do. He was in Affliction. Um, He's in The Box also. Is he? Yeah, apparently. Stands to reason. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he in many ways, seems like a very specific type of dad in that he he seems like he could be kind of clueless, but in fact, he knows... He knows what's going on more than than it would appear. I like that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and then, but Mary McDonald, I think, as Donnie's mom, really shines. Mm-hmm. I think she she's an actress that I've liked in uh, a ton of stuff. She was in that film Passion Fish that we watched for oh, that's not right. a yeah, while yeah. ago. She the lead in that one, yeah. yeah and then she know. was in uh, Battlestar Galactica, the the new show. Yeah, she plays uh, the president. Oh yeah, yeah. That's um, right. and she's yeah, and she was in um. Sneakers. I remember first seeing her in Sneakers. I haven't seen that. Um, it's a pretty good movie. It's kind yeah. of fun. Uh, and there's just there there are moments that yes seem a little bit American Beauty-esque, except in my opinion, better. Where Donnie is Donny has major problems, major mental problems, and he knows it. And there comes a moment. I didn't write it down here, but you know, he said, you know, to his mom, he's having this moment of extreme. Self hatred, and he says, "You know, what's it like having a?" He doesn't say weirdo. He says something a bit more uh, damning than that. But you know, what's it like having a, a weirdo for a son? And she says, "It's wonderful." And just the way in which she can be maternal without seeming sappy uh, is something worth noting. Mm. She's she's a very She's actually a, a unique actress. I'd like to see more of her stuff. Um, and I guess I've listed off a fair number of yeah. things of hers that I've seen. But um, so the nature of, of Donnie Darko is, I, I'll, I won't go into it very much, but ultimately that Donnie uh, uh, has a near-death experience early in the film, and it kind of awakens him to larger ideas and uh a larger consciousness and he sees this bunny uh or rather a person in a bunny suit with a really creepy face um (laughs) named creepy face bunny man oh exactly yes which sounds like something from i don't know some internet cartoon somewhere that's really (laughs) have you ever watched that series salad fingers no boy oh boy it's marvelous and it is super creepy and darkly funny. It's something that I think uh, any like David Lynch fan would enjoy. <laughs> okay. um, salad Fingers, look it up. Anyway, um, but uh, now it's all I want to watch. Hang on. Okay, I got to rewrite, <laughs> realign right there. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, so, yeah, Donnie has this near death experience and he is. And so he starts to see this bunny frank who who guides him and and then Donnie starts to understand this na- this notion he starts to literally visualize these weird translucent liquid looking tubes that everybody has protruding from their chest and these tubes like stretch as far as the eye can see and essentially the person will just kind of walk along and these tubes are essentially a path. It is it is literally the visualization of this person's destiny. Yeah. They are they are walking along their destiny. They don't see it but he can see it. So he's very aware of this as an idea and starts to question this thought that well if you can see your path then can't you just walk the other way? Um which speaks to that idea of, you know, if you could s- see your whole life from start to finish, would you change things? Um, and ultimately, and spoilers for Donnie Darko, he is able to see that by living uh, through that near-death experience uh, and the relationships that he forms afterwards, he actually puts other people in danger and actually causes the death of somebody that he loves. And so he suddenly realizes that it it is better, in a larger sense, for him to have died. In that uh, that accident at the beginning, and so he does, and he does so willingly, and so it's it really is not unlike the last act of uh, the last temptation of Christ, where Christ steps off the the cross and has this whole life, and then when he realizes, no, I should have died on the cross, then the film snaps back, and there he is, Mm -hmm. and so. Donnie, once he accepts that this is what he would rather have happened, he's back in his room, and then this accident happens, and he and he dies laughing. But it's a, it's a laughter of acceptance and a laughter of understanding, and it's a really it's a really powerful moment, I think. Um, <clears throat> and it speaks to this idea of he was he's able to see the positives and the negatives, and then. It would appear that his destiny was to die at this moment, and mm-hmm. he might not have been ready for that. He he might have thought, no, 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 I want this other thing, and in doing so realizes that there would be positives with him living, but there would also be negatives. And so in the end, he'd rather just stick with what his destiny was, which— even in this case, what meant to die. Um, so it's there's some really complex ideas there, um, and I think it's handled very well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that, um, you know, because we're talking about fate. We're talking about you know the the path that your life will take. Uh, you know, you could. We could bring in terms like predestination or God's sovereignty or God's mm-hmm. will. We're not going to go too deeply into any of those, but um, but we are going to stick with this idea of you know um, following God's will for your life um, through the through the good and the bad, and understanding that. Even when things are bad, and even when they seem hopeless, that even in those moments there is there in there actually is a plan, um, and that God is in control. And there and it's interesting. There are, there are lines here that I wrote down from Donnie Darko that I thought were very interesting. Um, one, uh, he's talking to uh, his professor, played I think by. Um, Noah Wiley Mm -hmm. um, from ER in which the professor says, if we were able to see our destinies manifest themselves visually, then we would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. And the mere fact that this choice exists would make all preformed destiny come to an end. And then Donnie says, not if you travel within God's channel. And so there comes this moment when Donnie is talking about, I believe, Frank, um, oddly enough. But he says, he says, I have to obey him. He saved my life. Because it is, in fact, Frank that lures him initially out of his house. room yeah. so he avoids this accident. I have to obey him. He saved my life. I have to obey him or I'll be left all alone. And then I won't be able to figure out what this is all about. And so this idea that there is this external... Um, Presence that is guiding you one way or another, and that you need to stick with that thing if you're going to make any sense out of this life and about these experiences. So. So I have a a number of longer biblical passages here. uh, And so I'll go with Jeremiah. You can go with Ecclesiastes and then I'll go with Matthew and then we'll go back and forth like that. Jeremiah 29 verses 11 through 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, uh, uh, declares the Lord, and will bring you back... to the place from which I carried you into exile, so I wanted to talk about this very br- briefly so this is talking this is God talking uh, about people being exiled uh, according to god 's own will. He banished uh, 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 the people of Israel from a certain place uh, and exiled them to a certain place and And this is according to his will, but he is saying, you know, when 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise. Now, 70 years is a long time. So he's talking to a a larger people. He's not talking to an individual person. And so if I'm 50 years old and I hear in 70 years I'll do this, I could have this thought of, Oh, okay, so I guess I'll just screw myself and that's not gonna happen for me. But hey, thanks for that promise. Um, Or, which is true enough, by the way, you know, that person could be dead in 20, 30 years. Either way, they're not going to see the fulfillment of this promise. But they could also see that. There is a promise that's going to be fulfilled. And by my staying here, where in in exile during that time, uh, I am all that is also fulfilling God's promise. I am where I am supposed to be. And if I was supposed to be brought back into, uh, you know, the land that He banished me from, if I was supposed to do that, then I would. But that seems to not be the situation for me. And So this is, I'm not going to say my lot in life. I don't mean to put it that way, but this is the life that I am meant to live. And I am, what is the, what is the line from Donnie Dark? I want to make sure I get this right. You know, I am traveling within God's channel. I am living in God's will. Mm. Um, And so
1: I want to throw this to Josh with Ecclesiastes take us away. All right, this is Ecclesiastes 7:13 and 14. Consider what God has done, who can straighten what he has made crooked. When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore no one can discover anything about their future. Is this meaningless life of mine I have seen in this meaningless life of mine I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. All right. So... I love this. Well, I love all of Ecclesiastes.
0: It's <laughs> uh, it, anytime I read it, it's weird. People, some people see Ecclesiastes as remarkably depressing, and I could see that. Mm. But in other ways, uh, it's refreshing.
1: Yeah, I think in its acknowledgement of a lot of the. Uh... More depressing realities of existence, it's kind of like nice to see that in the Bible. That yeah, it's like that. No, this is something that God recognizes and He knows, and He knows that this is a problem with the world. Yeah, it's not just like God is out there saying, like, No, no, everything's good, and we're down here saying, Well, what about this? Yeah, it's
0: you know, as I as as we've said before on this show, is that you know, I, I find myself thinking that oh, the Bible has. The Bible is very antiquated. It has nothing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm somebody who deals with depression, which is obviously a very modern problem. Nobody was depressed in the Bible. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, nobody was nihilistic in the Bible. Nobody dealt with existential crises in the Bible. Uh, and then you read all of Ecclesiastes and you realize, no, this is somebody dealing with the meaninglessness. The uh, It's almost nihilistic, except that it isn't. It's mm-hmm. saying... Wow! Look at how unfair things can be. Look at how ridiculous things can be. You know, uh, what is it? Uh, the wicked living long in their rich in their wickedness. The righteous perishing in their righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, to go back to the Jeremiah uh, passage, the guy who is not going to live long enough to see God's promise fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of this is fair, but at the same time. Ecclesiastes is saying not to think in terms of fair or unfair because those are extremes. There are individual moments in in a given hour of your life that can be both fair and unfair. It can be both things, you know. It says whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. And so if you are to go back to Arrival or Donnie Darko, if you are saying I'm going to try and work things so that I can avoid any kind of sadness or any kind of anger or loss. I'm going to literally try to live in that extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first off, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah. And if you try to live that way, you're probably going to um, miss some opportunities, I'd mm-hmm. say, for some great things to come into your life and... You know, there's that, uh there's a wonderful Homer Simpson quote that I like to say, not always facetiously, <laughs> which is trying is the first step towards failure. <laughs> um, and it's something that I, th- that is true enough, but it is also the first step towards success, or maybe there are some steps along the way
1: towards failure that will be remarkably beneficial. Yeah. Um, and I think we can go back to the, other, to the, uh, to the verse also that says that, um, well, verse says, I guess that say God's ways are not our ways, and that uh, you know we can't mm-hmm. totally understand what he what he plans. And there are times when it'll say, "What what you planned for for evil, God planned for good," and um, uh, that's. I think one of the things these films are are touching on is that we can't fully know the implications of something that may immediately seem good or bad to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something bigger beyond that. And so I think as Christians, we're able to, to know that there is a point to all of that and to have confidence in that and, uh, and to, to bring us contentment in our, in whatever our situation might be, knowing that if it if it might seem uh, if it might seem bad, then it could be something that God will use for good, and um, to not have as much, uh, I guess, to not lean too much on our own understanding when we right. believe that something might may seem good. Yeah, and so I'll actually jump to this next passage because it is
0: reference specifically what you're talking about, mm. which is Genesis fifty verses nineteen through twenty one. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Uh, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And in this case, he's talking to his brothers who uh, sold him into slavery. Hmm. Um, And yeah, it is, you know, surely... Uh, Joseph did not think when he was sold into slavery, and then when he was uh, 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 thrown into prison, thrown into and, prison, and just surely uh, he was he was faithful. But in that moment, I'm sure he thought, "Well, I guess this is uh, where it ends. I guess this is uh, I guess God's will is for me to be here in this prison doing nothing." not
1: my uh not my instinct but what do i know uh and the the one that is the hardest part of that story that that because of the way it it is written kind of is just a quick moment but uh when he has that guy that he's like buddies with goes back to be with the king and that guy just forgets about him for years (laughs) yeah (laughs) It's like, man, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a terrible part of that story, and it's only a, it's only a brief thing. But it's like, not in his life, it wasn't a brief thing. It was years of him thinking, like, any day now, this guy's gonna like get me out of here. And then after five years, you're probably like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. So you know, I I
0: guess I'm still holding on to hope. But I gotta say, five years of nothing. <laughs> I think maybe I should let go of that. Um, but yeah, and. And yet uh this all needed to happen there's no there was no way i mean of course, there would always be a way if God wanted there to be a way, but right. um but this is how god came uh, how Joseph came to Pharaoh. he needed to be in a position where he literally couldn't go anywhere else yeah um and uh and so something amazing not merely was Joseph ultimately elevated way beyond where he would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. But out of that, lives were being saved. Um, and so, uh, so we skipped this one. So I'll go ahead and read. Uh, no, let's have you read
1: Matthew okay. right there. Go ahead. This is Matthew 5, through 45. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. that you may be children of your father in heaven He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect.
0: Okay, so once again, uh, this speaks to natural human instinct, which is, I will avoid pain... And I will embrace things that are good okay and that and in this in this regard it 's there are people that cause that have caused me pain and will cause me pain, so they're no friends of mine i 'm certainly not going to pray for them, and in fact, I will actively work against them uh, and this passage um, says that no that's not that 's not how we should operate we can't think in terms of bad or good we have to always be thinking in terms of i was gonna say think in terms of good but think in terms of i guess just think in larger terms which is this person who is persecuting me is still a child of god they're doing something terrible obviously Mm -hmm. um but it's not my place to wish them ill um in fact, I'm supposed to do the exact opposite of my instinct and to pray for the people that are hurting me. And so along those lines, you know, if we can uh, extrapolate larger things from this, it's maybe that we don't necessarily go looking for pain and suffering. It will it'll find us eventually. Don't worry. But at the same time, maybe you are called into a job that is going to be very difficult for you as a person or as a Christian or whatever. Um Maybe you're being called into a relationship that is that could potentially be uh problematic not morally but like emotion you know mm-hmm. you, you happen to love somebody who is a handful mm-hmm. um you know somebody has to love them, and it's you <laughs> and but tremendous things can come out of that mm-hmm. um and maybe even more tremendous because of the difficulty with which you you love this person um Now, here's the thing. I want to read 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Here's what strikes me as interesting. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to break something down. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Continually, pardon me. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here's what I like about that. This is one sentence. There's a semicolon, but this is one sentence. But it's three verses. Hmm. Rejoice always. That's 16. (laughs) Pray continually. That's 17. And then the rest of it. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's 18. The idea, it's not a thing I think about very often until I was reading this. And that is the way verses are broken down. Hmm, It really does. The fact that rejoice always is one verse Mm -hmm. and it's just two words followed by Pray Continually, which is, again, two words and one verse, um, it speaks to how important those ideas are. Because verses, obviously, it's important to look at the larger context of any verse. right? But at the same time, verses often can be looked at on their own. And mm-hmm. so, quite literally, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that says, Rejoice always. There's a verse that says, Pray Continually. You know, that is to me, uh, astonishing. And I think it speaks to the, the importance of those commands, uh, and then following up with give thanks in all circumstances, you know, that obviously is counterintuitive. We're not going to want to give thanks when bad things are happening mm-hmm. to us. Um, <clears throat> but to give thanks to under is to understand, well, first off, it's to look to God in any circumstance, and the moment you start looking to God is when you start to put things into perspective, including your own suffering, but mm. also, you know, including your own happiness. Yeah. Um, so, uh, John 16, verses 32 and 33. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. This is Jesus talking, by the way. Uh, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, you know, if we take all of these verses together, and this is a lot of stuff to talk about, it's that you will have trouble... People will persecute you. The evil, uh, you know, the wicked could actually prosper a lot. uh, And yet, throughout all of it, you are meant to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks, and to keep, and, and to pray for the people that would do harm to you, and to not let your negative circumstances. And, and of course that's too small a thing to say the death of a child or even the sickness of a child, which is what Amy Adams character experiences in arrival or your own death, which is what Donnie is, is talking about in Donnie Darko. You know, those are not negative experiences. They are, but I'd say there are also, uh, life altering tragedies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the midst of that, it would seem incredibly difficult to give thanks, much less see any kind of positivity on the horizon. Um, but there are some really, really nice quotes here from Donnie Darko and Arrival that I want to read. Donnie says, I hope that when the world comes to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. I love that sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that you know, when the world comes to an end, I have something to look forward to. Yeah. Um, the same could be said of our own lives or our own, you know, circumstantial happiness, our own circumstantial sadness. Like when this thing comes to an end, we still have something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Dr. Thurman, Donnie's a psychiatrist, uh, is talking to is talking about Frank in this instance. Uh, in which uh, the doctor says if this world were to end there would only be you and him and no one else now obviously the doctor is talking about frank which is what did we call him the bunny uh
1: scary scary face bunny yeah i don't remember scary face bunny suit man something like that
0: yes that's that sounds close. right um you know so obviously that is you know she the the doctor is not talking in terms of of god no. um but this idea that when everything goes away it is just you and god now that might sound very intimidating that might even sound a little bit depressing because like well what about all my family and friends obviously that is important but in the end your family and friends are not who saves you. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're not the ones that are going to lift you mentally and emotionally and spiritually beyond whatever negative circumstances you're dealing with right now. Um, so I have an analogy. Okay. So being a, being a tough guy as I am, Mm -hmm. I just got a tattoo. Yeah. Uh, on my birthday And I have thought of this, uh, this analogy before, but I'd never gotten a tattoo. So (laughs) I thought I would wait. I might've said it before, but now I actually have personal experience. Um, getting a tattoo is painful, uh, when it is happening now, it wound up not being as painful as I thought it was going to be. So that means I'll probably be getting more tattoos (laughs) in the future, but, um, but it is painful when it's happening, and then even when it's done, you know you you're, uh, it still like scabs over and mm. looks really gross. <laughs> uh, you know I've had people say, "Hey, look at that's a cool tattoo. and it's like, oh, don't look at it. it looks <laughs> you know it's uh, Give almost it some time. <laughs> it's like the fly. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I feel like this little patch on my arm is turning into the fly. <laughs> the Jeff Goldblum fly, please yeah um, of course but you know, this was a. I, I really wanted this tattoo. I wanted it for years. And once the pain is over and once these scabs go away, I will have it forever. I have mm. it for the rest of my life. And that's now that is also kind of intimidating because, like, oh boy, do I really want this for the rest of my <laughs> life? Thankfully, it wasn't an impulsive decision. It was something I designed long ago. Yeah. But it's this I, you know, the analogy is pretty clear that if I. If I was simply trying to avoid pain and I didn't want to deal with the ugliness of like my scabby arm right now, <laughs> um, then I would never have this tattoo and in the end, the tattoo is going to last a lot longer than the pain that that I had to endure in order to have it
1: mm-hmm.
0: so in the in along those lines the the situation that you might be dealing with, and it could be something as horrifying as the death of a child, or or a, a spouse, or something like that. Um, you know, and that's about as bad as it can get. Um, but as painful as that is, that does not have to define you and. And the avoidance of pain is does not have to shouldn't should not be your ultimate goal. Like obviously, you don't necessarily need to steer into the middle of a storm, but at the same time, if you are avoiding major elements, uh, you know major opportunities professionally, romantically, whatever, uh, simply because pain could come. And in the case of arrival, you she knew it was going to come, and in the end, she ultimately decided that it was worth it. That the good that could come out of it was worth it, um, and so along those lines, that if you are called to do something by God, if you're follow, if you're called to to follow His will, even in, into the midst of uncertainty, um, then you still need to do it. And yes, bad things could happen, but in the end, it's not unlike this tattoo where in years from now, I'm not even going to remember that pain. Mm -hmm. I will only see the tattoo. And when we are, you know, in the arms of God, we are not going to remember, or we might, we might remember the the pain that we had to go through. Mm -hmm. Um, But that pain will be seen as, I don't know, glorious. I'm not quite sure exactly the, the phrase to use. Um, it will be seen if, if this seems almost, almost cheap, but it would be almost a badge of honor. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's the thing that you had to endure in order to arrive at God. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly God un, uh, went through a, a great deal of pain to arrive at you. Mm. So, um, something to keep in mind. And I will end with this quote from, arrival and even as i read it i get misty-eyed i didn't in the theater oddly (laughs) enough but uh as i read it now uh so it's louise and she knows at this point she has a total understanding she knows that she's gonna get married and they're gonna have a kid the kid after about 13 14 years is gonna get sick and she will eventually die And, but Louise is also very aware of how wonderful those 13 or 14 years are going to be. And so she says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it and welcome every moment of it. And that is ultimately what we have to do. And I say have to as though it's a chore. And obviously there'll be times when it feels like a chore, but, you know, this is the journey that we're called to. And, you know in those moments when we have in those rare moments, when we have like a bit of understanding about the, the weight of what it is that we have to endure, you know, my hope is that our larger understanding of the, the greater good of God's will will allow us to accept it the way Donnie does in Donnie Darko, where once he realizes where he is and that he, he is now, embracing his destiny even though it means his own death he is he is just laughing and it's and it mm-hmm. is a it's not a maniacal frank gorshin riddler laugh <laughs> it is it is a, a joyful laugh of acceptance and mm-hmm. uh because he is a guy who he knows the journey he knows where it leads and in this case he knows where it's going to end it. but he embraces it and he welcomes every moment of it so uh i think we will leave it there um... A lot of big stuff going on in this, uh, in this episode. So feel free to weigh in, in the comments section, or you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can email Josh, Josh at more than You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long. at the Josh long. I want to try and, uh, <laughs> end with some energy here. Um, you can also, uh, like us on Facebook and, uh, I think that is about it. Thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.